Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing a theme here, again during my research on the earlier years of the hospice movement. I was introduced to the work of Dr. David Clark. He wrote Dr. Cecily Saunders' autobiography. He's done a lot of research and work around Cecily Saunders. And we had a nice conversation about Cecily Saunders and her work in the emergence of the hospice movement in the 1960s in England. Please take a listen. From Hospice Chaplains and Audio Hive Podcasting Studios in Juliet, Illinois, this is the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Sol Bama. I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today, zooming in from Scotland, is Dr. David Clark. He's the author of Cicely Saunders, A Life and Legacy. He's also the founder of the Glasgow End of Life Studies. Welcome to the show. It's very pleased, uh, very pleased to be here. It's very kind of you to invite me. Thank you. Yeah. So to our listeners who are just listening to you for the first time, could you introduce yourself officially? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm um, a medical sociologist. Um, originally, I trained in sociology and anthropology and history. And um, I've had three main areas of interest in my career. The first was the sociology of religion. The second was the sociology of family life. And then uh, to the last stage of my career for over 25 years, uh, I, I focused uh, very much in the area of medical sociology and in particular end-of-life care. Um, I guess I'm known for having a strong interest in the history of the hospice movement, uh, not just in Britain but uh, in other places, and, and in particular the, the life and legacy of Cicely Saunders. Um, but I've, I've also done a lot of work uh, mapping the global development of palliative care. We created the first world map of palliative care, which is really the foundation for the uh, global atlas of palliative care, which is uh, now in its uh, second edition. Um, I've done a, a, a lot of work uh, looking at the social and cultural dimensions of uh, hospice, palliative care, end-of-life issues, public debates around these things, including assisted dying. Um, so I've had broad-ranging interests, and uh, in the last uh, five or six years, I've benefited from fairly generous funding from the Wellcome Trust, which has enabled me to establish the, the team at Glasgow University. So how did your interest in, in documenting the history of hospice and palliative care in the UK and the world start? Well, it began when I f first was drawn into working with colleagues in, in hospice and palliative care. Well, it, what was really called terminal care, uh, even then in, in the late 1980s. And um, I was working away on practical things, uh, evaluation studies, looking at policies to support development. Um, but I also very quickly got interested in the stories of people who'd been involved in uh, developing hospices. And uh, in, in my local area in England at that time, I, I did a number of studies describing the origins of specific hospices, how they'd come into being, the struggles that they'd had and so on. And I found these stories fascinating and they were, you know, an insight into community life in different places, the concerns of local people getting involved in advocacy for hospice, fundraising, lobbying and so on. And uh, I began to realise that there was a, a really rich treasure trove of stories there. Um, and that some of the people that were emerging uh, as leaders in the field or had emerged by then uh, also had very rich stories to tell. So I had funding at that time from the Wellcome Trust to start to build up a, a, a small number of uh, oral history uh, uh, interviews. Um, we started out with the goal of doing 20, but over the years we've built an archive that ha has over 800 interviews in it with people who founded hospices and palliative care services um, all around the world. Some of them very well-known figures in our field, but many of the uh, less well-known uh, people who contributed at a local level, often uncelebrated and uh, uh, by no means famous, um, who uh, all of whom have very interesting stories to tell. So that, that was my kind of point of entry. And uh, that led to various other studies that I did uh, over the years that had a historical focus. Did you find it a, a thread of when you said struggles that you know that 
really tipped a trigger in my mind as uh, was there a consistent type struggle that every hospice or burgeoning hospice was running into? Well, I guess there are a number of themes that stand out in those stories. Um, the first one is the the resistance that you see from the uh, healthcare system and the medical profession particularly. Um, it's repeated in many settings. Why do we need this? We do it already. Yes. Um, you know, we're already doing these things that you're talking about. Um, and we're worried that you're going to take our patients away from us. Um, so that, that was one. Another one is uh, very commonly uh, in, in Britain. Why do you need a building to do this? What, what's so special about having a hospice building? Mm. Um, how can volunteers be involved in this? Surely you need professionals like us to deal with these uh, tricky issues. Um, and then going on to perhaps more subtle questions, what's the evidence base that what you are doing is any more effective than what we are doing? Mm. Um, what is special about uh, this new field that uh, you're talking about? Isn't it as old as medicine itself? Uh, what's special about this new new approach that you're making claims for? I, th I think these are quite consistent uh, uh -huh. resistances that come up in many, many settings. Um, in poorer countries, it's often, why should we focus on people at the end of life? Uh, ah. Why should we ameliorate suffering uh -huh. when we really need to focus on disease prevention and health promotion? Um, so you know, th these are kind of fairly common themes. Do you still see them today? Oh, I think so, yes. Okay. Um, okay. I've been involved in, in, in my local area in recent years to try and set up something called a Maggie Centre. There are a number of these all over Britain now um, that give psychosocial support to people in uh, cancer treatment. And uh, we still haven't got one in our local area, but most of the reasons that uh, we haven't are to do with resistance of the kind I've been talking about. Um, so I think it, I think it is quite common uh, still to, to find that resistance. I, I, one of the pieces of work I did some years ago was to write a history of the project on death in America. Mm. Ah. And I remember some of the um, uh, African-American uh, faculty scholars uh, of the PDIA talking about resistance that they found in the black communities uh -huh. uh, of the U.S. to palliative care. Yeah. I still vividly yeah. remember a, a person saying uh, in a meeting, you know, that the reaction that she, she'd had was uh, when trying to venture into these areas was, look, when we have uh, same access to healthcare as you, when we have the same life expectancy as you, when we, uh, you know, can uh, benefit from all, all of the modern technologies of a healthcare system, um, then come to us and start talking about improving care of the dying. But until... Mm you've done that we're not really very committed to this yeah so there's a history of resistance there could you give us yeah. the, the the wider context before the emergence of cecily saunders and saint christopher's hospice uh, what was the context for death and dying in the united kingdom well the the context i, I guess is really uh, to do with the formation of the welfare state and, and of the national health service which came into being uh, in 1948 after world war ii the plans for it had been built by Beveridge during the later period of the Second World War. Um, so this was going to give um, universal health care, as we now call it, um, free at the point of delivery, funded by taxation to all people according to need rather than means. And of course, the famous slogan that went with it was that this would provide care from the cradle to the grave. Mm. Um, but if you look at the um, early decades of the NHS, what you see is a very strong emphasis on building um, systems of care that were focused around new technologies, the ability to cure diseases, um, the ability to um, rehabilitate people from illness and, and trauma and, and injury. And uh, in fact, the, the sort of policy themes uh, in the National Health Service in the 1950s and into the 60s were um, really um, very, very, very quiet, if not silent, on 
the improvement of end-of-life care. Um, there was growing recognition even then that there was going to be a population challenge um, as the, those baby boomers who are now coming on stream at that time uh, grew old. The people were forecasting the kind of situation that we're in now with a very high demand for uh, care at the end of life. Um, but there wasn't much policy commitment to doing anything about it. Um, the priorities were elsewhere. So this was, the, you know, we talked about struggles a moment ago. This is a struggle for Sicily and, and, and her contemporaries to convince people that there was something to be done here uh, and that something quite tangible could be done. How did the breakthrough eventually happen? Well, one of the areas that um, Cicely Saunders focused on, which uh, made sense in terms of engaging um, sceptical uh, physicians, was the field of pain. And um, the, the, there was a conversation to be had about uh, pain at the end of life, in particular in relation to cancer. And um, here she identified a kind of conspiracy of silence around pain, a fatalism about it that uh, uh, if you have cancer, then you will also get pain. There's not much that can be done about it. You have to be stoical. Um, as Cicely often said, um, if you got pain relief, you had to earn it by being in pain. Um, <laughs> you know, it, uh, so... She, she began to show how this was an issue. She did a lot of research on, um, on pain, starting in the USA with uh, some of the work that was going on in the 50s, mainly to do with acute pain and post-surgical pain, but um, uh, developing into uh, chronic pain and, and, and cancer pain more generally. Um, and I think this was very effective. What, what she began to show was that if you give analgesia on a regular basis rather than on on demand when the patient is hung out for as long as they possibly can before asking, that in fact you, you can control pain effectively, even with methods uh, and formulations in the 1950s that we would now regard as being rather quaint. Uh, for example, the Brompton cocktail mm. has many, many names all around the world and I think in one or two places is still being used. Essentially, it's um, a combination of very strong pain relieving drugs that are in a in a vehicle. The vehicle is alcohol. Uh, now, this could be whiskey or rum or gin, according to the the, te- the, the preference of the patient. Uh, it would contain um, uh, opium or. Um, um, some derivative uh, of opium uh, in different forms. It often contained cocaine, which worked uh, against uh, uh, the the opium-derived drugs uh, uh, biochemically. Uh, It could could have a tincture of cannabis in it. It sometimes had a sedative in. Um, And it was was made available to the patient to take, um, you know, as a drink at the side of the bed. Subsequently, she supported a lot of research done by Robert Twycross, which showed that um, the, uh, the Brompton cocktail was really pretty unsophisticated and that um, you could actually give morphine in solution or by tablet um, um, and get just as good results and it was cleaner and easier to handle. Um, so she was digging into those kinds of questions and finding something of an audience. People were interested in that. I think that was where she... Um, no, no pun intended, but that was where she got a breakthrough. Oh. <laughs> I see. Uh, to um, you know, she began to attract the interest of medical audiences, and in in my book, her, her biography, I've written about some of the famous lectures that she gave in quite daunting situations in London to medical circles that you know, began to get a, a hearing. Um, there was more engagement with the argument about pain than there was with some of the other aspects of hospice that Sicily was promoting, but this was very effective. Uh, um, and it was the driver for her going into medicine because famously Cicely Saunders had been um, first a nurse trained in, in wartime and then a social worker. 
And then in the 50s, she, she studied medicine and qualified in 1958. But she'd been advised by her mentor to go and study pain. There was so much more to be learned about it. And uh, you should be a doctor in order to do that. Um, so I think that was very important. And the really significant thing I, I think about Cicely in this context is her uh, development of the concept of total pain. Because we've been focusing just now on physical pain and uh, analgesia to relieve it. But through the stories of the patients that she encountered at St. Joseph's Hospice in Hackney in the late 50s and early 60s, she she very, very clearly began to articulate the, the multifaceted nature of pain with its social dimensions, its psychological, its spiritual, uh, and also its uh, physical uh, dimensions. Um, and uh, it was a series of papers that uh, emerged in the early 60s in which she started to articulate this and it fully fledged form by about 65, 66. She's, she's talking about the concept of total pain uh, as being what um, hospice is concerned with. And just as with a pain that's multifaceted, you need a team that's multifaceted in order to address it. You, you you don't simply need the doctor or the nurse. You need the social worker, the chaplain, um, the volunteer um, to, to be involved, to see this total pain in all of its aspects and uh, to, to respond accordingly. Um, so the total pain idea is, I think, absolutely critical to Sicily's thinking and mm. still remains a fascinating concept. I mean, some of my colleagues at the University of Glasgow are still actively researching it uh, for doctoral studies and uh, writing about it in, in, in new articles. Um, so I think it's a very, very important uh, concept that uh, tra translated elsewhere in her lectures and her teaching and her reading. Uh, and it derived from a, a particular patient, Mrs. Hinson, uh, in the hospice, who on admission had said to Cicely, all of me is wrong. <laughs> and it was that notion that everything is wrong with me, all of me is wrong, that yeah. led Sicily to the concept of total pain. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Dr. David Clark, the author of Cicely Saunders' A Life and Legacy, published by Oxford University Press. We'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Saleh Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. David Clark. Could you give our listeners a window into your relationship with Cicely Saunders? How did it start? Well, it started when I was getting interested in this idea of building a, an oral history archive of stories about hospice. And um, we got a bit of funding uh, to do this from the Wellcome Trust uh, in the mid-90s. And we decided to use the, what we termed the reputational method. We went to the person with the biggest reputation around in, in, in the United Kingdom to talk to them, and then we asked that person to guide us to others in their network who might also be able to help us. Um, so the obvious first person to go to was Cicely Saunders. She was very, very receptive. In fact, she'd written me a letter of support when I applied for my grant, uh, saying how important this work would be. Um, so um, it was one of my colleagues on the team who did the early interviews with Sicily, um, uh, Professor Neil Small. And uh, we, we saw there was something important here. Um, the interviews were fairly standard. We, uh, with hindsight, she said a lot of things that uh, she said elsewhere. What was coming out of it was a, a more of a sense of how she fitted into the wider world of hospice and palliative care and what her contribution had been. 
So this led us to discover there was a huge archive of material uh, at St. Christopher's Hospice um, that was obviously very important historically. And uh, I got very interested in, in, in that. And I, with Sicily, we, we, we made some arrangements for an initial cataloging of the archive back in the 90s which I think was very important work because the, all of the Sicily's papers were just languishing in the basement of St. Christopher's. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the basement got flooded, so they were prone to damage. But we rescued them. And then I started looking at them in real detail, and uh, I got very fascinated with her correspondence. Um, this is pre-email and text message <laughs> and um, pre-photocopier in many cases. So... Her early letters are all in carbon copy form. Um, but to cut rather a long story short, I, I, I got so interested in her letters that I thought that they told a fascinating story in their own right. And uh, in about 2002, we published um, a collection of her letters from the late 50s to the late 90s, 700 letters written to people around the world that told their own story in real time and they were placed in chronological order. And uh, this seemed to attract a lot of interest. Um, so I, I then had the idea of uh, a second volume, which would be a collection of her most important uh, papers, publications. And we worked together on that, and we produced um, a collection of her selected writings, over 40 papers. Um, Sadly, she didn't see that book published. Um, she she died in uh, the summer of 2005, and it was published later that year. Mm. But by then, we were in deep conversation about what would happen after her death. We had a lot of discussions about the archiving of her papers, and ultimately they, these went to King's College London, where they'd been superbly catalogued and, and preserved. Um, but... Um, I'd written a lot of papers about Sicily by then, but uh, and I'd read the biography of Shirley de Boulay that had been published in the mid-90s. But I, I felt there was a need for another biography that uh, would encompass the whole of Sicily's life. So um, one day uh, she was visiting us uh, for a small conference at the University of Sheffield, and I said, Cicely, I want to start up the doing more interviews, go back to the interviews. And um, at the time on the TV, there was an advert for beer, which was uh, the, it was a particular beer that could reach the parts that other beers can't reach. <laughs> and I, 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 said, so I said to her, Cicely, I want to be the interviewer that reaches the parts that other people haven't reached. Mm. Uh, she, did, she didn't really... <laughs> get the connection but <laughs> she, she understood what i meant and what was what was key here was all of the previous interviews we'd done whether it had been in her office had been very formal and time bound um cicely was an odd character she 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 had behind her desk a kind of platform that she sat on so whoever was opposite her sitting on the other side of the desk was sitting below her and she was sitting higher <laughs> However tall they were, they were always they being below. looked down on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this, you know, you look at any photograph of Cicely with, uh, in her office with somebody and they're at a low no. level. So she said, look, um, come to my house. We'll do the interviews there. And what we discussed in the early uh, stages of this would have been around about 2000 was that um, these interviews would be used for a posthumous biography that would be the third volume in this trilogy of um, the uh, collected letters, the selected writings. And she talked to me openly uh, in a way, I think, which she hadn't spoken to many people on, on, on the record before, knowing that what she said would not be revealed until after her death. It wasn't that there was anything particularly dramatic or, you know, kind of, um, terribly um, special or secretive about these things that could only be revealed later. But I think she was more candid with me than she was with many others. Mm. Um, so it was a great privilege to sit with her over these years. And I would see her two, three, four times a year. 
um, I am asked about 25 interviews doing that. And many, uh, the interviews had two themes. Each time we met, we would talk about some aspect of the past, um, what, what was involved in going to St. Joseph's, what was that world like, or how did the concept of total pain develop? But we were also, at the end of each interview, we talked about, well, how are you now, Cicely, since I last saw you, what's happened? And well, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm having, you know, radiotherapy or treatment. Um, I'm struggling with my legs. I, you know, that I need another carer to come in and help me. So I began to get a really close picture of uh, her own final years in terms of her health and her life and her, um, you know, continued enthusiasm and struggle to uh, to get herself into St. Christopher's each day. The hospice was just around the corner from where she lived um, to go and pray in the chapel, to go into her office, to meet people and so on. And uh, I, 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 you got a vi very vivid picture of the, the final years of her life, as well as deep recollections from decades before. Um, so I felt something of a burden after Sisley died in July of 2005. I thought, well, that biography has to be written, uh, but it doesn't have to be written right now. And in fact, I don't think I'm in very good shape to write it. You know, Cicely's just died. It's, we're all very raw. Um, and then I moved jobs to the University of Glasgow and was involved in you know, being the dean of a rural campus and that kind of role. Um, time went along. And, and one day I had a, a moment when I thought, um, 2018 is going to be the centenary of Sicily's birth. That would be a marvellous time to publish a new biography. If you're going to do that, you need to move fairly quickly. <laughs> um, so I got back to my publishers, Oxford University Press. They were very supportive. Uh, and then I started to write and um, worked very hard over uh, about a year, um, writing, writing, writing. It's the, the, the biography is the biggest book I've ever written. It's twice the size of many of my other books, mm. 150, 160,000 words. Wow. And fascination, really, of writing a biography because you know, I'm an academic sociologist. Uh, I'd be, I was getting more and more interested in writing in ways that would be intelligible to more than just two or three other academic sociologists. <laughs> um, so I really set out with... Um, this book to, to write something that was scholarly, well-referenced from all of the source material I had. For example, I had a complete set of all of her publications by now, everything. Um, I had the interviews, I had the correspondence, I had the archive. Um, and the, the fascinating challenge was to write a story that would engage people about a person's life. Um, and the, the more it went on, the more I was kind of uh, challenged by, have I covered this yet? Have I mentioned that? Should this come in here or should it have been earlier? And trying to hold in my head the whole story of Sisley's life in all of its rich detail, um, I, I found very, very rewarding, but also challenging. Some days when I was writing, I'd be very, very tired at the end of the day. Um, but eventually uh, I got there, and uh, I think the book has been pretty well received, and uh, I, I'm, I'm proud of what, what I was able to achieve. Um, I think it is a readable story. It hasn't hit the bookstalls and been a, become a bestseller, um, but I, th I think it's a robust biography of Sicily. And, of course, she um, had no part in, uh, no influence on the writing of it. With, with Dabule. Uh, she was alive at the time. Uh, she read Dabula's drafts very carefully and commented on them and uh, added an appendix uh, to, to the book and then something else in the second edition. Um, I, I didn't have any of that. And I don't think I would have done, even had she been alive. Um, her brother, Christopher Saunders, uh, was very kind to me throughout the writing process but on behalf of the family, he never once asked to see any of it before it was published. He knew that Cicely had trusted me to write what I think is quite a candid, but I hope also loving uh, biography um, of Cicely. And I felt very privileged to be in that position that I could 
say what I wanted to uh, without any pressures from Sicily herself, obviously, who was dead, or, or from her family or any of her close friends and colleagues. Um, so it was a, a uniquely special experience for me. When, when she was preparing, you know, the, the last period of her life, she's thinking about funerals and wills and things. And uh, she asked me if there was something I would like. I, sa- I said I would like one of her husband's paintings. And uh, we'd had some robust discussions over the years about religion. I'm a sociologist who's very interested in religion, fascinated by it, but I'm not a believer. I, for convenience, I call myself an atheist. Um, so we talked a lot about this. And one, on one occasion, she said to me, David, um, I don't believe in the same God that you don't believe in. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I got a letter from St. Christopher's many months after she died saying that I'd been left a painting in, in her will, uh, I was very eager to see it. And uh, when I took delivery of it, um, it's her husband's painting uh, of the Annunciation, the, the, <laughs> the, the revelation of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had hung in Cicely's bedroom. <laughs> And I felt she was speaking to me, you know, from another place uh, to have left me that picture. It wasn't just some nice pastel of a sunset that it could have been or something like that. It was something with a very, very powerful Christian uh, dimension to it. So I look at that picture every day and feel very blessed to have been given it. Seeing and being and living with Sicily during the end of life. Uh, it seems like everybody wonders if they their loved one has felt that they've been worthy. Uh, did she ever question that? Did she have any regrets? Did she? Uh, I'm just curious about during that personal time of her life. Well, the, uh, towards the very end, uh, um, she never said this to me, but I have mentioned it in the book, um, she, she said it to one of her close friends, um, or rather asked her, uh, have I done enough? Uh, yeah. And um, we have now formed a Sicily Saunders Society. We've had a few Zoom meetings with quite large numbers of people attending. We had one last week. Um, and this, this, this matter came up. There were several people on the call to whom she'd said this. Um, so, uh, it seemed to be there with her in, in the final weeks, um, this paradoxical question from a person who had achieved so much. Yeah. It's set in train, effectively a global social movement, but we're still asking at the end if she'd done enough. Um, and, uh, I think that bears a little bit further reflection. A few of us are going to talk a bit more about that. With that, we'll take a little break. Our guest is Dr. David Clark, the author of Cicely Saunders, A Life and Legacy. If you haven't bought the book yet, please, I encourage you to read it. We'll be right back. We've been waiting, waiting for COVID-19 vaccines to be developed. Now, waiting for them to get to us. But you can do more than wait. You have powerful ways to help slow the spread right now and protect your family and loved ones, too. Here's how. Watch your distance. Stay at least six feet away from folks you don't live with. It's risky to be indoors with them too. And of course, avoid crowds. Also, wear a mask. CDC reports masks protect the people who wear them and folks around them. And wash your hands using soap and water for 20 seconds and do it frequently. Vaccines won't make COVID go away overnight, but they give us a real chance to finally overcome it as long as we keep watching our distance, wearing our masks, and washing our hands. Learn more about vaccines at cdc.gov slash coronavirus. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Dr. David Clark. Uh, So you spoke earlier about the gift that Cicely Saunders gave you. Uh, How did that impact your faith or your spirituality? 
Well, I, I, I continue to, to be very interested in the Christian tradition. And um, I, I enjoy learning more about the ritual practices within different strands of, of the church. And uh, I, I'm quite drawn to uh, people who have tried to um, reflect Broadly about uh, a Christian view of the world, and some of the, some of whom were um, very influential on Sicily, what you might call more liberal theologians and and other writers and, and people in the clergy. Um, but I've also been become interested in um, some of the more mystical aspects that interested Sicily. The, the in particular the 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 book the Revelations of of divine love written by Julian of Norwich in the uh, late medieval period, said to be the first book written by a woman in the English language, which is about the visions that she had. And Sicily was uh, so taken with Julian of Norwich that um, we discovered when we uh, catalogued her books, which are also in the archive of Kings, that there were about a dozen copies of the revelation of divine love that had been translated from Old English in different ways over time. And um, there was one that she told me was in a sorry state um, because she always read it in the bath and it had got all kind of <laughs> luffy. Um, so th th these have been important to me and I, I've been, I continue to read uh, around these things. And uh, um, you know, I, I'm interested in the continuing role of religion, uh, particularly Christianity, within the world of palliative care. Um, so, yes, in that sense, she has uh, left something with me. What was the motivations for uh, St. Christopher's? Well, you know, the, the standard uh, sort of answer to that is that uh, it was through her encounters with patients from being a medical student onwards, um, seeing them uh, in, in, uh, in their, the context of their lives as they face the end of their lives uh, and trying to find a better way to uh, support people in that situation. And classically, it's the David Tajma story of 1948. And what I've explained in the book uh, is that... Uh, Sicily kind of had a view of David Tajma that didn't quite fit with the facts, even though the facts were in her possession. Um, but, you know, he, he, he became the sort of founding uh, figure in her mind uh, of St. Christopher's. And nowhere in the contemporary record in her diaries uh, are the phrases, let me be a window in your home or uh, I only want what is in your mind and in your heart. Mm. Uh, are, are these written down? No. Mm. But Sicily used them repeatedly all of her life to um, take us back to the sort of foundation myth of David Tajma as being the driver for, for everything. And he was, it's very interesting, he, he was dying in uh, another country. He was Polish. He was... Uh, estranged from his family. He was questioning his Jewish uh, beliefs. Uh, he felt his life had been a failure. He was, he was only in his early 40s as he died. Um, all of these things, Cicely sort of built her approach around. How do we do better for somebody like this than the, the, the noisy ward of a, a, of a general hospital in London? And she came away from that experience already beginning to formulate in her mind the idea that you could have a special place that, that could do this. And that's when she discovered the work of the uh, earlier hospices that had been founded in London in the late part of the 19th century, just a handful of them. Um, she approached one of them, went to work there as a volunteer, uh, evenings and weekends, and, and that was St. Luke's. Uh, in Regent's Park, and that's where she came across this idea of re regular giving of analgesia. Um, but from from then onwards, you know, she was on fire. Really, she was uh, soaking up information. Um, she she turned to uh, uh, medicine to to study medicine, um, 
by the time she qualified, she 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 published a paper called Care of the uh, Dying of Cancer, which is still a classic work. It's the first book, uh, first uh, paper in in the book of selected writings, where she formulated many of her ideas, even as she'd finished medical school. You spoke about some of the myth that she might have created around uh, Mr. Tajma. Why was that important for her? Well, I think she was conscious of creating this. Um, she um, she said to me rather rather disarmingly one time that uh, "Let me be a window in your home" was a very very good fundraising line because you know it's build because she was able to say. It took me 18 years to build the hospice around the window. Um, but that, that to me, that phrase is much more important. Uh, I try to explore it in the book. It, it, it has much deeper resonance. You know, a window is something that allows you to look in and out. It, it provides light. It provides air. It, you know, it's a wonderful symbol. Um, but she, she used it pragmatically as well uh, as a kind of, well, we, you know, we need to build the hospice around the window. Mm. Um, so he, he was always there in her um, her lectures and stories and so on. Um, he was the first Pole that she fell in love with, and famously she, she fell in love with two more. The second one was also a dying patient at St. Joseph's Hospice in 1960, Anthony Miknovich. And then uh, after his death, she met the artist Marian Borges-Sisko um, and... Um, Eventually, after a long sort of courtship, uh, that, that they married when she was in her early 60s. And uh, they had about 15 years of, of marriage together before he died, a very old man, because he was quite a lot older than her. Um, so the first two patients, um, the way Sisley would describe it was that um, David Tajma gave her the concept, but the sheer pain of the loss of Anton Miknovich, with whom she was unequivocally in love. She loved David Tajma. She was in love with uh, Anthony. Mm. Uh, and the, the repressed grief um, that uh, then accompanied her loss, she couldn't talk about it with people. She'd hidden her um, love for him um, uh, in the hospice while she was caring for him. They'd been very circumspect and discreet um and then she was um all at sea afterwards and she had other bereavements not long afterwards um and she she was in great pain and she, what she said was that that gave if david had given her the idea anthony gave her the authenticity mm. to to go forward with with, with what hospice could be about mm. So how did the concept of it being a, a home come about? You had to have a building. You see, in the United States, we don't have that in its entirety yet, even yet. Yeah. Well, she was drawing on the legacy of the, the homes for the dying that had been established by religious orders oh, okay. uh, in Europe in the 19th century, in London, particularly in the, in the later part of the 19th century. She also looked at other examples in the U.S., like Rose's Home in New York and, uh, and, and, and other places, uh, the Calvaire in France, um, the uh, some of the work of the Sisters of Charity in Australia. These were all communities of people living together. There were homes for people at the end of life, but they had a sense of community that was underpinned in all these cases by one religious strand or another. Um, so she was drawn to that, but she also was drawn to the idea in the, um, in the, the late 50s and early 60s that was um, getting a lot of traction in Europe, and that was of the idea of new religious communities. Um, people forming in what, as a sociologist, I would call intentional communities, bringing mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. together to live differently yeah. with some sort of order or rule. And of course, the most famous of these is probably These in France, mm -hmm. uh, and also Grandchamp um, in Switzerland, which was the sort of sister organization to These. So, Sicily wrote to the um, 
to, to Grandchamp and got in correspondence with, with senior people there. She went there on a retreat uh, after the death of Anthony Miknovich. But she postponed her first trip there because uh, she was too busy caring for him in, in the summer of 1960. She went there in 61. Um, so she's very drawn to ideas about community, and um, she was helped a lot um, by people knowledgeable in that field who were studying um, this phenomenon of new religious communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so she saw a place that would have terminally ill people in it, but also would have somewhat sort of long-stay residents. And... Um, it no longer exists now. It, it fell victim to costs, pressures um, some years ago. But when she founded the hospice, it had a whole wing called the Draper's Wing, where people were, a small number of people were living out the last years of their lives. Uh, some of them and were connected to members of staff of the hospice. So sometimes um, staff members went to live there. So and and they would eat in the dining room each day and meet the staff and the patients in the hospice and that kind of thing. They would sit with patients and read to them and things like that. Um, so the idea of it being a community was terribly important, mm-hmm. and she did a lot of um, thinking about that uh, in in formulating her her plans. Uh, it, it, and and that was also: is this going to be a religious community? Uh, with its own rule, or is it, as she eventually decided, that it would be a medical establishment with yeah. a very strong Christian ethos? Um, so um, that that idea of community is very important to her. And I think now we think of hospice, community of hospice, in a, a wider way, not simply the bricks and mortar. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a huge mm-hmm. move towards a kind of new public health approach to end-of-life issues. Um, health-promoting palliative care, new public health approaches um, that is all about building communities that aren't bound by physical space. But what it gave her was um, a wonderful showcase for her ideas because what was really key to St. Christopher's was that it was a community, um, but that it, it, it had three dimensions. The, the, the previous hospices had been giving we think, good, tender, loving care to people over a long period of time. But their influence on the wider system around them was very, very limited. They didn't promulgate their ideas and and seed them elsewhere to any extent. And she saw two other strands that would help that happen. One was education and the other was research. So by combining these, um, she brought together excellent clinical care uh, with uh, an inquiring approach to research uh, and the development of education programs. And um, really, it, St. Christopher's was serving as a, an educational facility even before the first patients had come in. <laughs> there were people visiting from around the world, particularly the United States, who, who wanted to see what this was all about. Um, so that was the radically different approach. It was still rooted in this concept of community. She called it a community of the unalike. It was a, a oh. mix of believers and non-believers. She was very drawn to people, you know, the, a life that a Christian herself throughout her adult life. Um, she was very drawn to people from the Jewish traditions, oh. and uh, they were made welcome there, and uh, she drew on their ideas. Um, so it was believers and non-believers in those days, when they talked about it being ecumenical, what they simply meant was they brought together various tr- strands within the Christian world. You know, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Catholics, right, the Anglicans. Right. That was ecumenical. Mm-hmm. But she told me later in her life that she thought that the, the Muslim community that had developed in and around the hospice over the years in South London um, respected the hospice mm. because mm. the way she put it to me was, they can see that we're serious about religion. Uh-huh. Um, so towards the end of her life, a lot of discussions were going on. And I, again, I've written about this in the book about whether what was going to happen when Cicely had gone with this very special view of things and should they be um, 
as it were, downplaying the Christian underpinnings um, should they be adapting to a multicultural society around them of people of all faiths and none? And how were they to go about this? Not that uh-huh. Sicily had actively excluded these groups, um, but she had you know, such a powerful influence on the day-to-day life of the, of the place and the routines of prayer in the chapel every morning and, uh, and Sunday worship in the chapel and so on. Um, but this, uh, this very strong Christian ethos was still present through her and also bit of a flashpoint uh, was the, the paintings of her husband, which were all around the hospice, and many of them had Christian themes, and some members of staff towards the end of her life were questioning this, and saying, what does this mean to people who aren't of the Christian faith, and is this appropriate that we're, you know, mm. presenting this view of the, of the hospice? Um, so she was aware of these changes that were taking place at the end of her life, and one reaction she had to it was to reconvene um, a kind of prayer group that she'd established many years earlier to 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 meet and read and and, and pray about these issues. You know, I, I think continuing to try to protect, preserve, promote, deepen our understanding of the history it is so important. And uh, you know, I've been very keen. In, in the last few decades to have graduate students working with me on these areas and getting interested and trying to convey the importance of the history to clinicians today. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, it's, it's very, very important that uh, we, we continue to explore these founding values that, that are, are key to the evolution of hospice and palliative care. Um, and, and that whole generation of Cicely Saunders and her friends and colleagues um, were very, very serious about what they did. They read widely, they discussed in thoughtful ways, they wrote, they taught. We have some people doing that now, but you know, perhaps in some ways in the US you have more thought leaders in, in the field than, than, than we do in the United Kingdom. But I think we need people who step above the parapet of the clinical world and who can communicate these these things to wider audiences is so important. And Cicely was very, very good at doing that. Um, she regularly appeared on TV and the radio. She, she was the subject of um, various essays and, and long journalistic pieces. Um, there's somebody who's been in touch with me uh, recently um, who's writing a book on the notion of condolence from classical times to the modern times, and he's writing a chapter um, on on Sicily for that. Um, you know, scholars are still being drawn towards Sicily and, and, and her uh, contemporaries, and I think that's testimony to the richness of, of her life and uh, her contribution. That was Dr. David Clark. I thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. 